So that song is uh, an interesting, there's an interesting dynamic in that song as you're singing it. Um, of course, the, the verses of that are an old hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Um, and then there's been a, a modern bridge um, or chorus added into that song. And as I was sitting there listening to it, I thought, man, this is, there's almost tension in this between the verses and uh, the chorus, um, not because of the instrumentation or anything like that, but we're singing in the verses about God's holiness. And of course, that means he is distinct, he is unique, he is set apart. There is no one else like him. And then in the verse or in the chorus that has been added, the emphasis in the chorus is on God with us, with sinful human beings and his presence dwelling among us. Um, and so there's this tension between God being exalted as creator and unique and perfectly holy and pure and above all and free from sin or defilement in any way. And then at the same time, there's this exaltation and joy in the fact that God is with us. And so there is tension there. And of course, you know, as well as I do, that that tension is resolved as we sang there in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ coming and making us acceptable to come into the presence of a holy God through his blood shed on our behalf. And that is a very appropriate song for us to sing this morning as we go back into talking about the tabernacle and in particular the priests this morning. Um, but that tension is there and you have to recognize that tension and I think you'll see it this morning as we talk about why the mediators, the priests were so necessary for Israel and why the tabernacle was so, so necessary for them as well to enter into the presence of a a thrice holy God who they were dealing with and who we're dealing with as well. So open up to Exodus around chapter 28. We're going to move around a little bit this morning, but Exodus 28 is where we'll be, 28, 29, and thereabouts. Some of you may be aware that a couple of years ago, there was a bit of controversy raised when a very popular, very influential pastor named Andy Stanley in one of his sermons said that as Christians today, we need to, quote, unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. And of course, in our social media age, everybody had an opinion on that and a response to that, some of it quite helpful. But let me read to you a little more of what he said beyond just we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. He said this, Jesus's new covenant his covenant with the nations, his covenant with you, his covenant with us can stand on its own two nail-scarred resurrection feet. It does not need propping up by the Jewish scriptures. He goes on, the Bible did not create Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus created and launched Christianity. Your whole house of Old Testament cards can come tumbling down. The question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? And the eyewitnesses said he did. He continues, it's liberating for people who need and understand grace, who need and understand forgiveness. And it's liberating for people who find it virtually impossible to embrace the dynamic, the worldview, and the values system depicted in the, ancient, in the story of ancient Israel. Now, of course, there are a multitude of problems with any approach that tries to sever our faith from the Old Testament scriptures. And you can go online and find many, many helpful responses to what Andy Stanley said. And 
responses that talk about the importance of the Old Testament, but I want to focus on one particular problem that helps us in our understanding of the priests and the tabernacle this morning. So listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, of course talking about Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now here's the problem. If you begin the process of unhitching your faith from the Old Testament, then these verses in the New Testament don't make any sense. You cannot understand them. You don't have any idea what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. Why do we need one? Why would he become one? What specific things did he accomplish as our high priest? The Old Testament plays a vital and important role in the story of God's redemption of mankind from sin. And you cannot sever it. And unfortunately, some of us practically sever it by never reading it and never understanding it, even in the details, such as we're going to talk about this morning. And so because of all of this, it is necessary that we know and understand our Old Testament. And that understanding includes passages like Exodus 25 to 31, which describe the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle, and the role of the high priest in the life of Israel. This passage is not secondary in the history of Israel. It plays an important role in the process of redemption that is being unfolded in the Old Testament and that leads to the New Testament. This passage shows us why God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. Why did he do it? He saved them, he redeemed them so that they might know him and so that he might dwell among them for their blessing and for their benefit so that then they could be a blessing to the nations, so that his name could be proclaimed all over the world through them. Now last week we began studying this section that has all the details of the specifics of the tabernacle. And all these things that God gave to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, telling him exactly what they were supposed to do in constructing his house, his tent. And here's what we're looking at in this passage that we're going to continue this morning. Three reasons to delight in God's presence with us, because that's the core of all of this. It's God's presence with sinful mankind. That's the heart of this. And so the first reason to delight in the fact that God desires to dwell, or that the the fact that God is with us, is that he desires to dwell with his people. He wants this. He is taking the initiative here. He gives the instructions so that he can come and dwell among sinful mankind. Look with me at chapter 25. I know you to, I told you to open to 28, but sorry, flip back a couple. Chapter 25 and verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now keep in mind, we talked about this last week, but that term sanctuary means a living space or a dwelling place. It's the word that we translate tabernacle. And this word is used throughout chapters 25 to 27. 
And it's this word that means or that indicates to us that God is going to come and make his living space. He's going to take the initiative and come live with Israel. And so in these chapters, you have the description of this house and all the different elements or most of the elements that are going to be in this house. You have the Ark of the Covenant described, the table for bread, the lampstand. You even have the description of the curtains and the poles and everything that's going to go into the construction of this house because all of the details are important in how it's made because God is going to come and live there. And he's going to do this and dwell among the Israelites in order to do them good so that they might know him and be near him. The second reason to delight in God's presence with us is that now on the flip side, so God sets the initiative and he comes to dwell with man. And now on the flip side, mankind can draw near to God. And this is what we find in the passage we're going to talk about broadly speaking today in chapters 28 through 31. Look with me at chapter 27 verses 20 and 21. And this is where this section begins. And you'll see there's a different word or different phrase used here to describe the tabernacle. It's not the sanctuary. It's not the tabernacle anymore. This new phrase is found at the beginning of verse 21. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning. This is talking about the lamp there and the oil that goes in it before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So this is the new phrase that is used throughout chapters 28 to 31. I love how Moses has structured this whole thing in order to show us the reality of the tabernacle. It's the tabernacle, God's living space, and it's the tent of meeting. It's the place where human beings, Israel specifically here, could come and they could be in close proximity to God. This whole section is going to focus on the priests and on the high priest in particular. Look at chapter 28 and verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, just mentally make a bookmark of those names for a moment here. We'll get back to them. Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And so you have a focus here over the next few chapters on the priests and what they are going to do in the tabernacle. Why? Why focus on the priests and their service in the tabernacle? Well, the priests are necessary to serve as mediators, as representatives between Israel and between God. There's a go-between that is necessary for the people to properly worship God and to properly draw near into his presence. I want to show you how the high priest in particular is the representative. Look at chapter 28, verses 9 through 12. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. This is the tribes. Verse 10, six of their names on the one stone the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. 
And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, which is what the high priest wears, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Look down at verse 21. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. Now look down at verses 29 and 30. So Aaron, the high priest, shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So you can see here that Aaron, the high priest, is the mediator. He's the representative, and he carries the names of the children of Israel, of the 12 tribes, before the Lord, so that whatever he's doing in his work represents the people. Now, we talked last time about the materials used in the tabernacle and how those materials used in the tabernacle would have helped the people of Israel to see that the closer you get to God, the more unique the materials are, the more valuable and expensive, and the more holy you have to be. And because of man's sinfulness and because of God's holiness, it is only through a holy mediator that the people can come to God. Only the mediators can come close to God's presence and only in the way that God has prescribed them to come into his presence. God sets the guidelines here. He tells them how they have to come before him. And before the priests can represent the people, so God doesn't just say, okay, here's what I want you to do. Before they can represent the people, before they can come near to God, they have to be made holy as well. These priests are sinful human beings, and so there has to be a process of them becoming holy before they can approach God. And what will happen if they are not holy when they come into God's presence? Well, you can see a couple of warnings here. Look at chapter 28 and verse 35. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. Look at verse 43 of chapter 28. And they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. I mean, there's the real risk of death if a sinful person approaches a holy God without being made holy. We see a very vivid example of this. Remember I told you to remember Aaron's son's names, Nadab and Abihu? Well, look what happens in Leviticus chapter 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. 
Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified or set apart as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. I think he knew this was exactly right. And so you see this story, and this is the reason why all of these detailed guidelines are so important for Israel. All of these instructions are necessary for them, and they're necessary for the priests as well. So I would love you to go back and read chapters 28 to 31 later, but I'm going to try to give you a short summary and introduction of what is going on with the priests here that hopefully will make more sense to you as you go back and read some of the details later on. So we're going to talk about the priests, but in particular the high priest this morning because he is the focal point of all of this. Now, first of all, in chapter 28, flip back there, God describes the the clothing and the garments for the high priest and then for the other priests as well. Look at chapter 28, verses 1 to 5. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty, two words used to describe the Lord. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy, you see the word holy multiple times here, holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linens. These garments are made for glory and for beauty because they are going to be in close proximity to the Lord. And interestingly enough, these garments are made of the same materials that are part of the inner court of the sanctuary, of the tabernacle. It's the same thing as they minister before the Lord there. They're made out of this same material to show that they are set apart. They have been taken from regular life, from normal life, and they have been set apart in order to serve the Lord. And so they have to be made holy. And so once these garments are described all in chapter 28, now you turn over to chapter 29 and you have this process by which the priests are made holy. Look at chapter 29 and verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them or to set them apart, that they may serve me as priests. So this process is pretty intricate and pretty detailed, but we can summarize it with two words, consecration and ordination. Now to consecrate something means you make it distinct. You give it over into service to the Lord. Think of Samuel. He was given over. His whole life was now lived in consecration, in service to the Lord. That's what this word means, and that's what's going to happen to the priests. The other word that is used to describe this whole process is ordination. Look at chapter 29 and verse 9. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. To ordain literally means to to fill the hand. 
You ordain someone, you fill their hand. What do you fill their hand with? You fill it with a task. They now have a job and a task that they have been given to execute and to fulfill. And so Aaron and his sons are going to be set apart for a task that is going to be given to them. Now, in order to consecrate them and ordain them, multiple sacrifices will have to be offered. And these sacrifices, we won't go through them in detail, you can read on them later, but these sacrifices point toward three requirements that are necessary before the priests could approach a holy God. First of all, they're sinful people. And so they need purification from defilement and from their sins. And so did the altar that they touched. And so this purification happens through the shedding of blood and then the sprinkling of that blood on the altar and on the priests. You'll notice in one section of this that they take the blood and they apply it to the priest's right earlobe and to their thumb and to their big toe. And the point of that is that their entire person has been purified. All that they are from head to toe has been set apart and purified from defilement and from sin. So they need purification. The second thing they need to serve as priests is atonement. The priest placed their hand on the head of an animal, and that animal was killed as a ransom substitute. It was in their place that that animal died. And that animal brought reconciliation and peace between God and between them. The third thing that they needed was fellowship with God. And so there was a portion of a peace offering that was eaten by the priests in order to show that now they have been purified, atonement has been made, they're set apart for service to God, and now they have peace with God, and they're living in fellowship with Him. Now, all of this happened over a period of seven days. Look at chapter 29 and verses 35 to 37. Hang tight with me through all this. We're, we're headed in a direction, all right? You need to understand what happens here before some of those New Testament passages will pop for you, all right? So chapter 29, verses 35 to 37. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you, through seven days shall you ordain them. And every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy." And so, here's what we've got. Chapter 28, the clothing of the priests. Chapter 29, the sacrifices that ordain them and consecrate them to ministry before the Lord. Now in chapters 30 and 31, you've got the description of all of these different items and all of these different practices that the priests are going to engage in and participate in as they fulfill their role as mediators before the Lord. Those items include the altar of incense, where incense was continually burned before the Lord in the holy place. It includes the wash basin, where they cleaned their hands after working with animals and the sacrifice. They took a census tax. It talks about the Sabbath. They make oil and incense. All of that is described 
so that they can, in 30 and 31, so that they can fill their, fulfill their role as priests. Chapter 31, you also read about the two men who were gifted by the Lord to create these items, the garments and the tabernacle, and how God had endowed them with skill in order to be able to do this. Now, all of this comes together in the high point of these chapters in chapter 29, right after what we just read. Look at verse 38. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you, to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And then here's the point. Here's why all this is happening. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, there are, th- there are three important points that you have to understand about this passage to get why all of this is being done. First, the priests were sinful men, and they, just like everyone else, needed atonement and holiness to enter God's presence. Second, They had to offer sacrifices and burn incense every single day in order to be able to enter into God's presence. This was something that had to be done all the time. I mean, you can see in 38 and 39, they offer a sacrifice in the morning and in the evening. Animals are dying all the time. Their blood is being shed every morning and every evening over and over again. And third... The whole reason for all of this culminates in verses 45 and 46, that God is going to dwell among his people so that they can know him. Now, once you sort of get this big picture introduction, and it would, be, it would do you well to go back and read the details later on, but once you get this sort of big picture introduction of the high priest, the other priest's ministry in the old covenant, it's vital that you jump ahead to the book of Hebrews and we read some passages there. So I want you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, flip to Hebrews 9. And I'm going to read a bigger chunk here. Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 10. Now, even the first covenant 
had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, which is all that we've been reading about, right? For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now I want you to skip forward. We'll go back to chapter 10 and verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, finally, let's go back to chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and of sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a hefter, heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Look at verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. One more. Chapter 10, verse 12. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Forgiveness, done, complete, by the sacrifice of Christ's blood on the cross and his entering into the holy place in heaven for us. I hope you can see through these New Testament passages, I just wanted to read a bunch of scripture so that you could see that the tabernacle and the priesthood play a vital part of a much, much bigger story. They're not incidental. They connect to this bigger story, and that brings us to our last point. Three reasons to delight in God's presence with us. This is where this whole thing has been building. So I hope you've been, you've been staying with me. I love this part. Every experience of God's presence points somewhere. Whether it was Israel then or us now. Every bit of it. All of our worship, when we gather on Sundays in here and we sing and we sit under his word, all of it points somewhere. And it points toward God's final purpose for creation. I want you to go back to Exodus, and I want to show you something. Exodus verse, chapter 25 and verse 9. We're going to fit all of this into the story of the Bible now. Exodus 25 and verse 9. In the introduction to the instructions for the tabernacle. Notice what God says in verse 29. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now look down at verse 40. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Now you read this several other times in the instructions for the tabernacle, and it's kind of Interesting. Like, okay, so there's, there's some other tabernacle, there's some other holy place that this is a copy of. You read it in Hebrews when we were reading through different portions of the book of Hebrews. And here's the point. The earthly tabernacle for the Israelites was a copy of the heavenly one, and so the earthly tabernacle always and by definition points away from itself to something greater. It's a type, and it's pointing to something better and greater than itself. That's why God says this here in the instructions. I want you to build this, and I want it to direct your attention elsewhere. Now, it points in two directions. Did you know that this tabernacle actually points backwards to the Garden of Eden? Now, what does that mean? Well, as you read about the instructions on the tabernacle, there are striking similarities between the building of the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. Let me show you what I mean, and I'm going to list some of the most significant. Both the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle face east and have cherubim guarding their entrance, the entrance into God's presence. 
Remember the cherubim that are on the inside of the curtains of the holy place, the most holy place in the tabernacle? We mentioned this last week, but the lampstand symbolizes the tree of life, which was in the Garden of Eden. There are stones, precious gems that are found in the tabernacle and the construction of the tabernacle that are also in the Garden of Eden. Gold is mentioned as being found in the Garden of Eden as well as onyx. The same verbs are used to describe Adam's responsibilities in the garden in Genesis 2.15 as are used to describe the priest's work in the tabernacle. And above all, the garden was the place where God came to meet with Adam and Eve and to, to interact with them and fellowship with them. And the tabernacle becomes the place where Israel can meet with God again. And so I think we're on good ground saying that God's purpose in creation back in Genesis and in the garden was to make a sanctuary, a dwelling place where God would be with man. And then you have these commands for Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and take dominion over the earth. And these are essentially commands to expand the borders of the garden as the sanctuary grows and God's presence and his glory cover the entire earth. That was their mission in Genesis. Well, of course, that fell apart with the sin of Adam and Eve. But here with Israel, you have God, by his grace, building the tabernacle and his presence coming to dwell among men again. And this is sort of a restart for his purposes hitching the wagon up again to get things going again through Israel and his promises to Abraham. This is the entire point of the promised land. This is why God gives Israel the promised land, because it is supposed to be a beachhead, a restart, the place where God's presence comes to dwell with Israel and blesses them so they can represent him to all the nations and so his glory will spread throughout the earth. This is the purpose of and the story of the whole Bible. You can draw a direct line from the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle where God's presence comes to dwell among Israel to the temple which Solomon built. And look at these words in 1 Kings chapter 8. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, talking about the temple, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim, for the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Oreb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. Same thing that happens at the end of Exodus. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is why Solomon built the temple. So God's presence would come and dwell among his people. So that the land would be set apart. And so that ultimately his people could represent him and his glory would spread throughout the earth. Well, just like Adam and Eve, you know what happens with Israel. They mess up, they sin, and then you have this passage in Ezekiel. Speaking of the temple, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. 
The cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. The point is, Israel sinned and defiled the house of the Lord so badly that he left. That his glory left the temple. No longer was he dwelling with man. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you don't have God's glory coming back and filling the temple. But you do have prophets that look forward to the day when God, when Emmanuel will return to be with his people. And then, lo and behold, you open your New Testament and you read in John chapter 1 that God came and tabernacled among his people. The incarnation is God returning to earth. His glory, fill of glory, grace and truth, we read about Jesus showing up on the scene. And so he comes and dwells with man in the incarnation. And then as Jesus prepares to depart back to heaven through his death and resurrection, making atonement for sin as the high priest and the Passover lamb, he makes this promise to his disciples in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And in Acts chapter 1, the Holy Spirit comes upon the followers of Christ, and now everyone who receives the forgiveness of sins through the new covenant receives God dwelling with man. The Holy Spirit is in you. And so now we read these words, not about your body, but about the church. Do you not know that you, the church, are God's temple? and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple, because the Spirit dwells inside of you. And so now you and I have God's glorious presence in us, working and expanding the gospel throughout the earth so that more people can receive the Spirit and come into the church and be a part of God's kingdom. And one day... This whole story is going to reach its final point and its culmination in Revelation 21. So we've gone through the whole Bible this morning. <laughs> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is the whole point of the whole thing. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. The curse in Genesis 3, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, here's the big takeaway from this. Here's what I'm getting at when we talk about the tabernacle and when we talk about God's presence among us. The tabernacle and the ministry of the priest was always pointing to something else, something bigger. So keep that in mind as you read the Old Testament. And then here's the takeaway for us. All of our worship, all of your experience of God's presence in your personal Bible reading, and when you come in here on Sunday, when we sing, when we worship together, when you sense God's presence among you, all of that is pointing to something 
greater. There's an eschatological purpose to all of this. That's not to downplay the importance of what we're doing here. We're in the times in between. We've received God's presence among us and we're waiting for the final culmination. And so when we worship together, it reminds us that God's Spirit is among us. He is ours. God is with us now. That has been made possible by the work of Christ. And that reminds us that one day, all of this is going to get wrapped up in Revelation 21. It points beyond itself to God setting everything right and coming to dwell among his people for their good and their blessing and their enjoyment and their getting to know him for the rest of eternity. The whole thing aims toward that. So keep that in mind. You are living in that story, right? That is the true story of the world. That's what's important. That's what's happening. It's so easy to get wrapped up in cultural stories, to think that you and I exist as consumers, to think that you and I exist for some lesser purpose, to live our lives so focused on the here and now that we don't get lifted up to this giant, big thing that God is doing. But this is what he's all about. Live in this story. Long for His eschatological presence to come and be among us when everything will be made right. So anytime you experience God's presence or you're in worship thinking about His presence, that is a foretaste of what's to come. And it points us toward the glorious hope that awaits us. Let's pray. Father, we want to be people of the Bible of this book, because this book is true, and this book tells us the true story of the world. I mean, we've just seen it from creation and fall through redemption to the final consummation. This is what you are doing, and we get to be a part of this. Holy Spirit, you are among us now. We are your temple, Lord. The Spirit dwells among us, and so we ask that you would just continue to work you would continue to point our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and his work and to that glorious hope that awaits us in the future when God will come, when you will come fully and finally and dwell among us. Thank you for our time together this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray.